Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the POF Podcast. It's Friday, October 28th. The buzzwords around Web3, sustainability, decentralized autonomous organizations, these are the buzzwords that have been taking over the fashion industry of late. In this week's episode, I chat with Joy Howard, who came up through the ranks of consumer packaged goods and has had a long and successful career in the fashion industry before deciding to venture out on her own as an entrepreneur well into her career. In this conversation, we share a little bit about what Joy is trying to build with her company, Early Majority, which is embracing the philosophy of degrowth, i.e. making fewer things so we can reduce the fashion industry's impact on the environment and live within planetary boundaries amid a climate crisis that continues to worsen. Here's a very interesting conversation with Joy Howard on the BOF podcast. Well, hello. It's great to see you again, Joy. Welcome to the BOF podcast. Thank you, Imran. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I have been looking forward to this conversation because ever since you and I first met some time ago now, I've been interested in this topic around degrowth and everything that early majority and you and early majority are trying to achieve. But before we dive into all of that, your pathway to this moment in your career is actually really pertinent as it helped to carve the way for you to end up pursuing the strategy and approach that you are taking now. So I wanted to start with a bit of background on you and your career. And actually, 
I understand you actually trained as a musician. So how does a musician end up working in the fashion business? Oh, gosh. Well, it has been quite a journey. And it's true. I was a recording artist in the 90s. I was in a band that you would basically describe as shoegaze. And we had a lot of good fortune to be signed as part of the post-Nirvana indie major label Gold Rush. So the whole theme of digital disruption, I mean, it runs through all of our lives, but it really has run through my career because basically I left the music industry in 2000. That was around the same time as Napster. And that was kind of a moment where the, really the bottom fell out of that whole industry. And so I think for me, definitely my experience as an artist has really shaped my career and it's definitely shaped what I'm doing right now. But long story short, I just didn't see a great, path ahead as a musician, as a working musician at that point. And so I was very interested in sustainability and social justice, like so many people are today. And I decided to go to business school and get an MBA in sustainable enterprise, which is what I did in 2002. And it was very early in that field. But, you know, we had big dreams of what we could do to transform industry and to make businesses more sustainable. And I actually got a job right out of business school working on that, on exactly that. But I was completely ineffective. (laughs) I mean, it was a lot of storytelling and imagining what we could do, but very difficult to get the buy-in of the people that ran the business. And what business was that, Joy? Okay, so that was at Johnson Johnson. And I had a role working right at the intersection of human and environmental health. So they had basically invested. I was in the business development and licensing and acquisitions group where they were acquiring companies and then trying to think about, okay, how could we incubate them internally and turn them into big businesses? It was the sort of thing where no one could say no to our idea, but no one could quite say yes to it either because it was so different from the rest of the business. And long story short, that experience was very formative to me because I realized that you can have all the great intentions in the world, but if you don't actually understand how to run a business, you're not really going to be that effective in business. And so I really ate some humble pie at that point and asked myself, okay, who's making the decisions in this business? And in a consumer company, it's the marketing people that make the business, both the president and the CEO had come up through marketing. That's how I got interested in marketing, which was not interesting to me in business school. But they said, look, you have to be a brand manager. You have to pay your dues. There's no shortcuts. You got to work your way up the ladder. And so that's what I did. And I just became a brand manager and it was fascinating. I owned a P&L from the very beginning. These were like very profitable, high margin businesses. I think the first marketing budget I ever managed was $30 million. So, you know, to operate at that scale right out of business school is really cool. And they expect a lot from you. So it was a great training. And a place like Johnson & Johnson or Procter & Gamble or Unilever, all of these consumer packaged goods companies, they are known for brand, but they're also known for analytical rigor and discipline. You know, it's like some people hear marketing or brand and they think it's soft. You know, they think, oh, that's that's fluffy stuff. But, you know, in some of these big consumer packaged goods companies, managing a $30 million budget comes with a lot of analytical sophistication. Like what brand were you managing when it was... <laughs> okay, Imran, you're asking good questions already because I was the brand manager on KY. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I mean, that was a very small business at the time. And we really turned it around. I mean, it had like 65% market share. It had been around since 1917, but it was very stagnant. And it was a category that people were like, okay, this category is a dog, you know, it's not going anywhere. But we had the idea to basically reposition the brand. 
And I think the thrilling thing about that kind of business is you see it come through in the numbers. If it's working, you see it come through in the numbers right away. Back then you had much more access to analytics than people do now, like Facebook and Google, and we'll talk about that, have such a stranglehold on, on the metrics. But back then there was something called scanner data. You could actually get all the sales data directly from all the retailers. So you could really see if you put a great ad on air, you could see it work right away. So yeah, it was very analytical, very rigorous. You know, you own the P&L, you reported on the financial metrics every month. You own the forecast actually. And you said, okay, if you give me this budget, this is how much revenue I'll give you. And if you exceeded the number, everybody got a great bonus. And if you missed it, people got lumps of coal basically. And that's how it worked. So you work your way up starting with KY, <laughs> KY Lube. For those of you listening internationally that aren't familiar with the brand KY, you start there. Where did it take you ultimately at Johnson & Johnson? And what motivated you to step out of the kind of CPG world? Well, I'm a big reader. And one of the things that was always interesting to me was, especially because I worked on a lot of innovation and new ventures, was how a lot of these big companies were constantly being surprised by innovations that seemed to just come from nowhere brands that came from nowhere that didn't really fit the mental model of how we built new products and built new brands within CPG. And so it was a real puzzle to me. I wanted to learn more about it. I got a book called How Brands Become Icons, which is a real classic in the branding and marketing world. It's written by a guy named Doug Holt, with whom I've worked a lot over the years. And he basically takes some more of a sociological kind of historical lens on brands and looks at how they operate through culture. And this just kind of opened a whole new world to me because rather than look at you, Imran, like what are your personal anxieties and what are the things that you're afraid of that I can sell you something to fix? Instead of that, it's like, okay, Imran, what kind of world do you live in? What's happening historically? What's happening in culture? And how do brands respond to that? And how do brands help you make meaning and shape your identity in that world? So I knew right away that's the kind of branding that I wanted to do. And of course, the most iconic brand at the time was Coca-Cola. So I tried to get a job at Coke and I did. I'm actually from Atlanta, by the way, which is where I am right now. So I went to Coke. And I worked on new product innovation at Coke for four years all over the world, did a lot of work in China, Latin America, was based in Europe. And then I got a call out of the blue from Nike, a legend at Nike, a man named Michael Lemming, who ran a division called Stealth Recruiting. And he had this business card that was like black on black, and you could kind of like only read it by holding up to the light. Michael asked me to come and be the head of marketing for Converse All-Star, which is basically Chuck Taylor. And he was very interested in my background as a musician, because if you know anything about Converse, you know anything about Chuck Taylor, artists really made that brand, musicians made that brand. And so I just leapt at that opportunity and I absolutely loved it. And my experience working on Chuck has been hugely influential in what I'm doing right now. And while I was working on Converse, maybe I guess like three years into that, I got a call from Egon Zender because Patagonia was looking for a head of marketing. Now, if you can imagine that Patagonia had to hire a recruiter, that gives you a sense of kind of where the brand was at at the time. It was just very quiet. And um, I remembered it from the 90s. And so, you know, I went to Ventura, I met Yvonne and I met Rose and we hit it off. And so then I went to Patagonia, became the head of marketing at Patagonia and also very formative on what I'm doing right now. And I would say really the idea for early majority started to take shape probably for me. I learned a lot about the outdoor industry. I learned a lot about fashion and apparel at Converse. But it wasn't until I went to Sonos, where I was the chief marketing officer at Sonos. And after I left Sonos, a couple of the board members reached out to me and said, you should start your own business. And it's weird. Like I never had any role models for starting my own business. It didn't even really seem like something that I would do. But they saw something in me that they thought, would make a successful entrepreneur. 
as soon as they said that to me, I knew what I wanted to make, which is what we're doing at Early Majority. But it's taken me a couple of years since then to kind of get my ducks in a row and really start the business. Okay. Because we, we didn't really launch the products until the late spring, but January of 21 basically is when we incorporated. So before we dive into Early Majority, I did want to spend a little bit of time on Patagonia just because, as you said, from having Egon Zender to find you at Nike, Converse, to the kind of visibility and respect that Patagonia has as a brand today. Like that must've been an amazing journey to be a part of. Like, what did they do right there? Why has it become such a totem for people in our industry? When we think about sustainable fashion, we very often think about Patagonia and we think about the ads and encouraging people not to shop closing down the stores on Black Friday, all of these kind of like a really disruptive kind of marketing moves that people don't really associate with a consumption focused industry like fashion. Well, actually, I think it's that very last thing that you said, which is doing the unexpected at the highest level. It's like whenever they take an action that is so clearly not in their own self-interest, people really reward and love them for doing it. Actually, I want to tell you a little bit about sort of like what they were struggling with when I joined, because I think it happens to so many companies. Like they've been very quiet. And when Rose came in, originally she was the CFO and she noticed that they were selling exactly what they made, right? She was like, oh, wow, I wonder what would happen if we made more. (laughs) And basically what was happening is that they had a lot of demand, but they didn't really have a lot of product. So they kind of like satisfied that latent demand. And then there was kind of a slowdown again. That's usually when someone brings in a head of marketing. It's like there's some sort of slowdown. But I think anytime you come into a business that has been founder led and you see that kind of slow down, stall out, you almost always have to go back to like what were the original founder values that the company was really founded upon. And at the time, they were very caught up in this sort of athleticism of outdoor sports and kind of like wanting to be really hardcore and really worried about their what we would call kind of their Harley problem, right? When all the accountants started riding Harley Davidson and it suddenly lost its edge, I think they were feeling a little bit of that too, right? You had a lot of people that were wearing the brand that didn't necessarily identify with the values. And so it was actually just really simple. And it was the insight was that people loved the brand when they found out what the company stood for. And usually they found out by having someone give them a product and then maybe they would have an interaction with customer service or they would get the catalog and then they would learn more about the company and then they would really love it. So the real flip for them was actually, the first one was just to flip everything that had been backstage, which is the company itself, right? Because all the marketing was really beautiful, outdoor sports, feats of athleticism. Take the company and put that in the front stage. So the first pillar of the strategy was just like front stage the company brand and take everything about how we work and what we do and who we are and just put that up front. And that was hugely successful because people dream of this idea of self-actualizing through work, which Yvonne really stands for. He's done the kind of work that has not required him to compromise his values. And I think everybody dreams of that. Sure, there's like pathological people out there who really don't care about what kind of impact they have on the on the planet, but not very many these days. You know, a lot of us really are thinking very deeply about how do we solve the environmental crisis. And so I think he's just a real inspiration for people. And we just put that story front stage again. And then the second thing, and this is all stuff that was there, just was not really stories that they were telling. The second thing was to just realize that they had a certain kind of athlete that worked for the brand. And they were all activists, just like Yvonne. And so rather than just tell the stories of like, oh, they did this incredible ascent, dramatize their activism and and their desire to save the places where they actually do the sports. 
and that was kind of the second pillar of the strategy that was really successful is basically to just tell the story of how we are determined to save these public lands and we actually go and do sports and we adventure in these places to draw attention to the fact that they need to be saved. Amazing. What an incredible place to be at a time of not just taking the original founder values, but figuring out how to make them so visible and palpable to the customers that are engaging with the brand. So I guess that brings us to today and this moment now. And you said you kind of ventured out on your own. You didn't see yourself as an entrepreneur. What was the idea that finally convinced you, okay, this is something I am going to pursue. I've worked for these like big organizations for my entire career, but I'm going to build something from the ground up. It was oddly enough, kind of my own dissatisfaction with technical outerwear. And I talked to enough people over time to start to feel like, okay, it's not just me that has this dissatisfaction. And I think probably the first spark was actually during my onboarding at Patagonia. Yvonne's wife, Melinda, developed this onboarding plan for me where I had to go and do every sport that Patagonia made gear for, like in the location where the sport was created. And so I was a little bit anxious about doing each one of these sports, you know, and I would go to the category marketing manager and I would say, oh, you know, I'm going snowboarding and they would give me the whole head to toe kit or I'm going climbing or I'm going fly fishing. And so I went to do several sports with Yvonne. And then I also did a lot of sports with Fuji, the guy that founded Patagonia Japan. And one of the first things that I noticed about them is that they had these kits that they had kind of dialed in that they wore for every sport. And so even though we were kind of telling the story that like, okay, you need a special head to toe kit for this activity. That's not really how they dressed. They had this sort of like layering system that they'd really dialed in. And of course they looked cool as hell, you know what I mean? Like they really had dialed it in and it looked fantastic. And so I would show up with everything new and they would have the same thing on that they had on for the last activity that we'd done. And so I just started thinking like, why couldn't everyone dress in this way? This sort of like system of clothing that allows you to kind of layer up and layer down, keep it really, really simple, but that you can do everything that you want to do in it. And my particular dissatisfaction came from the fact that I'm a cyclist and I have always biked to work and just really, really struggled to get gear that would go from bike to boardroom to bar to backcountry. I didn't want it to have to be different outfits. And so in some ways, like this vision of making modular multifunctional gear came from that actual moment of seeing how they really dress and thinking, okay, what would happen if we started with that as our product brief, which is what we did. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. 
The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. So tell me about the idea of degrowth, because it's not just about the kind of innovation in the technical outerwear space. It's also another pillar is this idea of degrowth, which is kind of a wider conversation that we're having in the world, which is fundamentally, can we actually live within planetary boundaries if we are operating in a system by which all companies need to grow in order to be successful? Well, I think not only all companies need to grow, but people need to grow. So I'm not anti-growth per se, because I think, you know, each of us in our hearts knows that it's kind of like Bob Dylan. If you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. So it's like, we all want to always be growing, but the way that we grow, I think is the question that we have to grapple with. And so I really felt like the reason that I was struggling to find really good, durable, functional, stylish gear is because of the growth model of most apparel businesses, which is about proliferation. Okay. It's just straight up product proliferation. And Nike created this thing, which was hugely successful. And anybody who's worked at Nike knows this term. It's called the category offense. What we did in running, we're going to do it in basketball. We're going to do it in baseball. You know, we're just going to like repeat it over and over again. And so at the core of the business is a question of what if we try to grow this business by expanding supportive community rather than proliferating unnecessary product? That is the question that we're trying to answer. And what does that mean, expanding supportive community? Because to the like, Outside observer, it might sound just like a bit of jargon. I mean, it basically means, can we draw other people to us who want to participate in this experiment and who get value out of doing it? And, and that's really what we're doing. Like we're sharing, these are the values. This is the kind of lifestyle that we want to live. We want to empower you to be able to do it too. Do you want to join us and try to create actually a different kind of company together? Because I think the people who have joined the company so far 
our members basically who join the brand community, they're signing up to build something with us. Like we don't have it all sorted out, but there is this new idea basically that people who participate in brands can own part of the brand, can be members in the brand and can benefit from the effort and energy they put into it. So I think anybody that comes into the brand has a sense that they're participating in something that's emergent and different and have a sense of discovery and I'm willing to go along for the ride. So we're making less stuff, but that doesn't come at the expense of growing the company because we're making money from membership revenue, not just selling products. That's right. And bringing more people along. So how have you progressed towards that goal so far? It's been, I guess, almost two years since you launched the company. How many members do you have? Like, How are things panning out for you around this model? And what are the challenges you're facing that maybe still need to be overcome? Well, the biggest challenge is actually building the product, the actual garments. Like that's been the most challenging part for us because it's interesting as you see a lot of these communities emerge, a lot of them emerge kind of around the promise of what they're going to try to do. Like this is a declaration of what we're going to attempt and build it together with us. But we had a different idea, which is that why would anybody want to be a member of our brand community if they can't really see what we're building and they don't have confidence in what we can build? So what we felt like we first needed to do was actually develop the garments so people could see them and touch them and feel them. Well, you're no stranger to the supply chain and you know a lot about what's gone on in the last two years. So we really picked a crazy time to do that. So actually, I think the biggest challenge has been making the physical garments getting them into people's hands so that they can touch them and feel them and appreciate, okay, wow, this is a really a different kind of experience. So we actually started with a newsletter, exploring the idea and the concepts. And we grew to several thousand subscribers on Substack, which is kind of a miracle because Substack is not the best top of funnel growth engine. It's like, you're literally counting on people to forward an email to each other to grow. And then we launched the site in the spring. So people could see a little bit more of what we were building And then we launched the token last month. And so about 10% of our subscribers have converted to members. And we've had about 100 people buy the token so far. So it's still very, very small. And what I would say that's going incredibly well is the type of people that we're attracting to the brand. Everybody introduces themselves when they join. And just being exposed to who gets it and who wants to help build it is really encouraging and inspiring. And then the second piece is the feedback on what we've actually built and seeing people out there in the world and giving us feedback on how we can improve it and just generally loving it. I think that's been the best part. So for those of us who are maybe somewhat far away from this world in which you're operating, which is like the intersection of Web3 and community-based brands and sustainability, you just said someone joins the brand, they get welcomed by everybody, they get a token. Can you just walk us through that user journey explaining step-by-step what happens. So say I subscribe to your Substack. you know, someone's forwarded me that email and I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. I'll give them my email address. What happens next? And how do I go from being the casual early majority Substack subscriber to being a fully fledged member that's bought in with the token? Yeah. Well, one of the principles that we've had really early on is that The people who are supporting us in the early days will always get outsized benefits of being a part of it. So subscribers got the first access to the token that we minted. And we took a lot of time basically explaining to them, okay, we're moving to a membership model. This is what it looks like. This is how you participate. Create your account. 
we had to walk people through it because it's a different experience than just like buy this. And that's the whole point is like these very transactional experiences that we have with brands are not that great for either side, I think in the long term. So, so basically there's two paths in one, if you have a crypto wallet and one, if you don't, because the reality is that there are a lot of people out there with crypto wallets who share the values that we do, especially people who are building in the Ethereum ecosystem, which is very focused on building community value and addressing the environmental crisis. And then there are people who are just like, I don't want to participate in this. This is terrible. So if you're a Web 2.0 member, you just have a username and a login. And that's how you access the member state of the site. So if you're a member and you come to our site, you log in and you unlock member pricing and you unlock member content. That's what we have to offer right now. And early access to products. So members always get early access. So what does that mean, unlock member pricing and unlock member content? What do I get as a member? As a member, you get first access to everything that we make. You get special member pricing. You get the content that we create. And then you also get access to our Discord server. And that's where people introduce themselves. Okay, when they come into the server, they say, okay, this is who I am. This is why I'm interested in the brand. That experience already is so different than your first interaction with most customers and most businesses. Unless you're meeting someone on the shop floor, okay, which is the importance of which we've seemed to have forgotten. If you're meeting someone on the shop floor, you can learn a lot about them in a very short amount of time. But through e-com, we thought we were having a more direct connection, but we actually weren't because we're not having this sort of dialogue. So anyway, people come in and introduce themselves. If you have a token, and this is where I think all of e-commerce is going, it's much simpler. So wait, what's a token? Explain what a token is to everyone who doesn't know. And and this is another buzzword that you'll hear a lot, tokenized community, okay? Or token-gated community. Yeah, yeah, token-gated commerce. I mean, we should talk about that too, because I really do think this is where it's going. So a token is basically a non-fungible thing that you own in your crypto wallet. Sometimes you can buy them with regular currency, but we sold ours with Ethereum, and we minted our token on the Ethereum network because we share the values of the other people who are building on that network. Ethereum is a kind of cryptocurrency that has worked very hard to pioneer ideas of collective ownership, environmental sustainability, and a lot of the people who are building on that network believe that in the future, the value that is generated by communities online should belong to the people in those communities versus the platforms, right? And platforms would be like Facebook, Google, et cetera. So the token is kind of like the mechanism by which you become an owner in the community. And it's something that you can sell on the open market. So you can think of it as it's like an NFT, basically. But most people, when they hear NFT, they think of these like PFPs, which are these profile pictures. And that's not what it is. Ours is more more like a badge, sort of like a membership badge, but a digital version of that. And I would show that badge in my wallet to other people. You could, but basically the reason that you have it is so that when you connect your wallet to our site, we automatically recognize you and we automatically log you in. And so this is the aspect of Web3 that I'm most interested in because it is so community focused. And I actually have a lot of faith in humanity to solve problems together. And I'm really energized by these communities that are forming online where people are working on solving problems together. When you mentioned just now tokenized commerce or token gated commerce, why do you believe that's the way things are going? Why do you find that so exciting? Well, I think there's two reasons. So first of all, I think it is actually very energizing to connect with other people around a common vision and a common goal. And the token is kind of like the thing that you all hold in common. 
And as the community becomes more valuable, the token becomes more valuable. Now, that's kind of like an instrumentalist view on it. And the very short term, what I think is kind of magical is the sort of just experiences that you unlock with it. So I have several tokens in my wallet. And whatever side I go to, I can get in with those tokens, but I can also unlock other kinds of perks and benefits and experiences with them. So it's actually very early for all this stuff, but I think the idea of if someone comes to our site, and this is what we just did, when we minted our token, we went to market with other like-minded communities. And so let's say you have a seed club, which is another DAO. If you have their token in your wallet, then when you mint our token, we can give you a special badge because you also have the seed club token. First of all, part of why it's so exciting is the data that about you, Imran, on the internet, you don't really own it or have a lot of control over it, right? Like, you know that you as a person on the internet are largely owned by all the different social platforms that you interact with. And this really flips that where the data that you're sharing with me when you come to my site is the stuff that you have put yourself in your wallet. And that's what I'm able to read about you. It's just a completely different paradigm versus having the many, many pieces of you belong to different kinds of internet platforms out there. So what are the lessons in here, Joy, for the brands that are operating in kind of the more traditional business model, like separate from early majority? Where do you see all of this going as as a fashion industry starts to adapt Web3 values, Web3 technology, Web3 operating procedures? Like, Where could this all go? Well, I think it can impact every single step of the value chain. First of all, if there was no promise to the technology, I don't think we would even mess around with it, you know? So we had to make a choice about where do we want to engage here. And for us, it was to start with tokenized community because that's the very beginning, right? So whoever works with us in the future will all have this shared value that we're creating together. But I think the next step is actually around token-gated commerce, So I think kind of like unlocking benefits for people on sites and you already see things happening kind of like in the loyalty space around that. Like another version of a membership token is sort of like a loyalty program. The other area where I think it's interesting is in composable clothing, which we're also experimenting with, which is allowing people to bring their own brand to the garment. So the branding on the garments is removable and we made badges with other communities basically. And that's kind of how we grew. So like this is another community and you can just attach it to the garment like that. So composable clothing, I think, is another area. There are experiences that clothes can unlock in the real world. So you can have NFC chips in your garments that sort of like unlock different experiences for you physically. I think two other areas that are not that new, but that are like greatly facilitated by blockchain would be verifiable provenance. So you see this happening a lot in diamonds, right? Where people are like, I really want to make sure I'm not getting a blood diamond. I'm getting a diamond that comes from a verifiable source. But I think verifiable provenance has always been something that's been interesting in clothing. People want to know about the farm that it came from, you know, the sheep that it came from and stuff like that. If I say it's 100% recycled plastic, like I want you to verify that that's the case. The last area where I think it's interesting is authenticated re-commerce. And so re-commerce is one of the most hopeful things I think that's happened in the apparel industry in the last decade is people realizing like, I'm proud to own something that someone owned before. And you can actually see that chain of custody and garments over time. And it even unlocks a revenue stream, I think, for influencers, by the way. So like, if you want to be able to verify that you own something in Ron, and then I'm really excited to own it because you owned it, then I can see that you owned it before I did. And it's like super cool that you had it. Now I have it. So those are some of the areas where I think it can have impact. And I guess the last area, which is 
a real kind of flashpoint, I feel like, in all of fashion and apparel is around designers owning their designs. And so this is probably the most exciting use case so far that's been unlocked on the blockchain, which is the ability of artists to always profit from their creations. But there's never been anything like that in design. That, and, and, and people have just almost you know, become used to thinking like, well, I can't own my IP. You know, there's no IP protection in the world of fashion. And I think that that's an area that blockchain could really also impact, but I'm not as familiar with that and haven't worked on that yet. Let's go back to the first principles here around building a more sustainable fashion industry and operating within a model that doesn't rely solely on making more things and selling more stuff. How does this approach that you're talking about get us closer to a more sustainable fashion industry. The impact that is not known to people at all is all the waste that happens in the apparel industry. So the first principle for us in creating a membership-based business model is this vision of making what our community wants and not making more than that. You need to have a relationship with the brand in order for the brand to be able to do that for you. So that's the ultimate vision for us is that we're really just making for our community and that's it. And there's no waste. Now, the impact of waste in the apparel industry is really wild. And a lot of how it's gotten to be so bad, I think, is because of the state of Web2. So just follow me for one moment, and then I'll get back to how this can unlock it. So what's happened in Web2 is that Facebook and Google own all the demand, right? They're basically demand aggregators. And what that's done to the apparel industry is make it incredibly supply driven. So it's like people are pushing out and and have very little visibility towards whether people are actually going to buy that or not. And that's where the waste comes in. This is a a report from the UN that 20% of what gets made goes straight to the landfill. E-commerce returns are like 30%. That's half of what we're making is not really hitting the mark. I mean, it's a failure rate that should be acceptable to anyone, but there's very little transparency around that. I think people don't want to disclose how much waste is in the business model because it makes it an unattractive business. It's much more fun to talk about the cool material science that we're creating or, you know, the fact that we're using recycled plastic than it is to have a conversation around how long the garment gets worn or how much of what we make actually just goes straight to the landfill. How much of the materials that we order just never even get made. Our manufacturer is offloading tons of material for pennies and dimes, basically. So I think having better control over the whole supply chain so that you're really making for your community is the like highest order vision for us. So this isn't an easy journey, Joy, because not only are you building a company, you are doing so as a later stage female entrepreneur with a new business model using technologies that 99.9% of people in the world don't even understand what they are yet. What's been the journey like so far and what have been the biggest challenges you've had to overcome personally and professionally to keep powering through? On the personal front, there is just this kind of misconception that startups are a young man's game. And I think you hear that repeated all over the place, but the data just doesn't really bear that out. Like entrepreneurs that are over 45 have much higher odds of success than entrepreneurs that are younger. So just looking at the data has given me a lot of comfort and also realizing like how much I've already learned as a leader that I can leverage and building teams and building the business has been really great for me. But I think confronting that bias and fundraising has been very hard. Tell me about those experiences in fundraising, because you, you often hear that women, especially women of color, 
get less than 1% or less than 2% of the overall capital out there. I mean, what did you confront in the fundraising process and how would you advise other entrepreneurs who are trying to navigate that to kind of do so with a successful outcome as you did? So women get 2% of venture funding. Last year it was 2%. So for sure, for women of color, it's a fraction of that. For sure, there's bias. I mean, you can't see a number like 2% and not think like, holy hell, what is going on here? This is really wrong. But there's also a lot of bias against the industries that we're in. And probably for good reason. The apparel industry is never going to be transformed unless it gets transformational capital. Like it requires capital to really transform an industry. And it's a chicken and egg situation where I think investors, they had a lot of confidence in me as a business leader, but then they would see like, oh, wait, you're making apparel? Oh, no, I don't, I don't really want to touch that. Or, you know, DTC, like they haven't had good DTC exits, investors haven't. And so I think part of the issue is I'm really wanting to work in an industry that hasn't been very attractive to investors for a while. When you say like, wow, that's really hard what you're trying to do. I think in some ways that's what makes it worth it for investors. It's like, do you have a vision for how this can actually be done differently and generate a very different outcome than what we've seen in the past? Something that we can be proud of as investors and that we can feel like we've transformed something that touches everyone because it's amazing to me that investors are so repelled by fashion and apparel when it's such a massive industry. Every single one of us is engaged in it. And it's literally the most interesting place where culture and technology touch the body. I mean, it's like so fascinating and so fun. So helping them see the way it is today does not need to be how it is tomorrow. Like let's experiment and try to create something that's radical and new and different. I think in the end, helped me secure investment. Because if, if, if all you're going to do is say like, you're going to play the game like everybody else, that's not really that interesting or attractive, I feel like to most investors. Unless it's an industry that's like, blowing up, which is not really what's happening to apparel. Well, wow. I mean, what a journey, starting with KY Jelly to Web3 communities. I mean, it's really amazing. And, you know, thank you for taking the time to share that with us and for sharing your advice as well, because there's so many listeners of this podcast all around the world who are so passionate about this industry and who are keen to break in and who come from different backgrounds like you did. And so having your advice and sharing your personal and professional trajectory has been really inspiring. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. I mean, you'll never know what can happen until you actually try it. Exactly. Well, on that note, I thank you very much, Joy, and have a lovely day. Thanks, Imran. You too. The BOF Podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF Studio team. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.